Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app welcome back everybody after a week off i got a whole bunch of work done both on lining up guests and um, putting together my fall tour which is quite an undertaking and a bunch of other projects that i'm working on and we have a fantastic episode for you today about happiness um it it seems to be the case that sometimes uh the the guests whose research i know little about and um have a hard time coming up with questions to fill an hour seem to be the guests that have all of the time in the world whereas guests like today's guest uh has who I could talk to for hours and hours um, has a very limited amount of time. We had to cut this one short. We she was able to block off forty five minutes for me, and and that was it. And so with equipment set up and everything else, um, I I got everything that I could out of it. The nice thing is is there are no lulls whatsoever in this conversation. I think you guys are really gonna like this one. So enjoy. Welcome back. And I'll talk to you on the other side. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with professor of psychology at UC Riverside and author of the books, The How of Happiness and The Myths of Happiness, Sonia Lubomirsky. Hey, Sonia, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Um, so you, you research uh, happiness. 
this seems to be something that uh, is of interest to, <laughs> to a lot of people. It sure is. It's one of those topics that I don't usually tell people on airplanes what I study because I don't want to get into a multi-hour conversation about it. Uh, they, yeah. they need you to tell them how to be happy. Yeah, and, exactly. And they want me to tell them that. everything I do, and I don't really want to work when I'm not working. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't like telling people I'm a stand-up comic <laughs> because there's a million questions. Um and then uh, it's like, oh, I've never heard of you. And I was like, yeah, I know. You didn't need to remind me. <laughs> um, so how did it, uh, what got you into studying happiness? Well, it was kind of serendipitous. I went to grad school uh, 25 years ago or so at Stanford University. And the very first day uh, of grad school, I met with my new advisor. His name is Lee Ross. And he was one of the world's experts on or is one of the world's experts on conflict and negotiation, which is you know, totally different from happiness, kind of the opposite. Um, and we started talking like, what is, about what is happiness and what is the secret to happiness? Why are some people happier than others? Uh, and that got, to, you know, got us to, um, you know, do some studies on, on happiness. How do you define happiness? It's a great question. Um, so as a researcher, I define happiness sort of the way that it's studied by a research scientist. Um, and that is that happiness essentially has two components. And the first component is you know, experiencing positive emotions, you know, pretty frequently, whether it's joy, affection, pride, tranquility, interest, curiosity, um, you know, not all the time. Of course, happy people experience negative emotions too. Negative emotions are important and functional in circum certain circumstances. So, you know, one of the components of happiness is the experience of positive emotions. Um, but the other one, there, that's not enough. Um, there's another component, which is basically feeling that your life is good, that you're relatively satisfied with your life, that you're progressing towards your life goals kind of in a satisfactory manner. So those are kind of the two components, positive emotions and life satisfaction. So this is kind of, you're talking about happiness in, in a pretty uh, stable kind of way, almost as like a personality trait rather than say a, a miserable person can get on a roller coaster ride and be happy for sure, sure. a minute. Well, it's both. So happiness is both a state and a trait. So we we do tend to study it as kind of a more of a, dispositional characteristic, although it's something that can change over time. But, you know, generally you're kind of a happy person, but you can try to become a, even a happier person. Um, but of course, you can also use happiness to describe a state like I'm happy right now because I just had a you know chocolate bar. Mm. Um, and why? Uh, so early on, you did some work with with uh, individual differences mm -hmm. and why some people are happier than others. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So at first, um, you know, we didn't really know much about happiness. Uh, there was, again, 25 <laughs> years <either>. ago. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of the science, there was not much science on it. Um, there was one person, Ed Diener, in Illinois, who was studying happiness. He, was, he called it subjective well-being. Uh, but there really was very little research on it. So we thought, well, we'll just start at the beginning and we'll interview people who are happy or not very happy, who've been nominated by their friends as being particularly happy or not happy. Um, and we also did some studies with people who are happy and unhappy. We uncovered lots of things that you will not be surprised to hear. So for example, in my dissertation uh, in grad school, um, I wrote about how happier people tend to not compare themselves to other people as much. That is, they do notice comparisons. They notice other people might be more beautiful than they are or make more money than they are or live in nicer houses or whatever, but it doesn't, it didn't affect them as much. If you're an unhappy person, you're the type of person who's like really affected by social comparison. 
Um, so that's sort of one dimension we looked at. I see this a lot in the comedy community. A lot. There's a, there's a lot of the most miserable comics are always the ones that are like, why does this person have this and that person has has that? And um, I I guess. I, I'm not sure that I fall on the happier end of things, mm-hmm. but I certainly don't do that nearly as much. I'm much more worried about what I'm doing. Yeah. And, you know, social comparison is definitely a recipe for unhappiness. You know, I mean, of course, you know, we, you know, it's ubiquitous. We can't help but see how other people are doing. Every time we ask someone, you know, how's your day going? You're inviting a social comparison. Um, but yeah, basically what the research suggests is that we want to really use our internal standards, you know, our personal standards uh, to aspire to rather than, you know, constantly comparing ourselves to what others have and really focus on what we have. Uh, A big line of research that I do is on gratitude. um, And we ask people to try to express more gratitude in their lives, write gratitude letters to people who have been supportive of them or or try to be appreciative. And in a sense, gratitude is an antidote to social comparison, you know, because it's forcing you to focus on what you do have mm-hmm. rather than on thinking about like what other people have and how you don't have what other people have. Yeah. I mean, is that kind of, is it just about comparing yourself to people or is it more about noticing in others what you don't have? Like, like, like say, say you're, you're at the top of, mm-hmm. say you're the president or whatever mm-hmm. else and you're comparing yourself to others. It, mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, it, Right, that well, that might very well make you happier. Right. Well, there's different comparison, different kinds of comparisons. We actually, it won't make you happier to compare downwards. So actually, that was mm. one of our initial hypotheses. We thought, well, happy people they compare themselves with people who are worse off. That makes them feel better. Uh, actually, that's not true. Mm. Happy, I mean, they, happy people feel bad when they comp- see people who are doing worse than they are. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. they feel sympathetic. Um, and so, basically, the happier you are, sort of the less comparing you do. But there's different kinds of comparisons. So, for example, you can have role models. Like, let's say you're learning to play the violin, and you have there's a, a violin prodigy that you aspire yourself to. That's a good kind of a comparison, right? It, it inspires you and motivates you to work harder to be just like them, hmm. rather than make you feel bad that you're not as good a violin player as they are. Oh, I see. Um, so I, I'm curious when when you went to find these happy people, did you did you notice a discrepancy be, between? So so you ask people and. Maybe you say, hey, who, who's someone really happy that you know? And, and everyone around this person says, oh, this person's happy all the time. Mm-hmm. Did you see much of a difference between what others reported about a person and what people reported about themselves? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. So that's a sort of a difference between self-report and other report or what's mm-hmm. called peer report. And we actually have done some studies on this. Um, and the correlation is, you know, like a 0.3. It's sort of medium, small to medium. Um, it's not a very high correlation, um, uh, and the reason is that, you know, people can say that they're, people can look happy and, you know, people think you're happy, but you're not really happy inside. And so you're not always going to find this like one-to-one correspondence between what people say they feel and what other people think they feel. But so it is a significant correlation between self-report and peer report, what other people, what your friends and spouses and roommates think of you, but it's not perfect. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious and, and it, you may not. This may not um, have anything to do with your work necessarily, but I am curious why people are um, so hard on themselves. I always, um, I've been saying lately that when when you're a kid, you need to be taught to 
treat others the way that it, that you want to be treated. But when you're an adult, you often need to learn to treat yourself the way that you treat others. Like a lot of people would never go up to a stranger and mm-hmm. call them stupid or whatever, like, like a lot of the self-talk that a lot of people have. Um, do you have any idea why... Uh, <laughs> like why the brain is so critical of its yeah. of itself all the time. That's it, a great point. I wonder if you're projecting a little bit. So, well, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's uh, very very yeah, possible. I, uh, I think um, <laughs> they're individual differences, right? And so right. some people are much more self critical than others, and some people. And there's a, what's called automatic thoughts or uh, or intrusive thoughts, where you have these sort of thoughts like, "Oh, I'm not so good at this," or you know. And sometimes they're really bad like or extreme like i'm a bad person you know i deserve to die you know the most extreme thought um and so there are individual differences um and some people have pretty good self-confidence self-esteem and they don't have those thoughts very often maybe they really yeah Yeah, you know those people like this i I guess i am projecting you probably have heard of some of them you know uh, some of them are are famous and so some people get even on the the other extreme um so but yeah there's a really huge continuum uh sort of between people who kind of have those kind of self-critical thoughts all the time and people who rarely do and kind of in the middle, those in the middle. Do you know what leads to some of that dwelling and rumination? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, good question. So I have studied rumination, you know, which is basically like overthinking and sort of thinking about like, oh, why am I feeling so bad or, you know, kind of dwelling on your problems. Um you know, there's, there's lots of reasons, you know, some of it could be genetic, some of it could be um uh, you know, sort of taught like sort of habits that could be role modeled, say, by your parents. You know, if your parents are constantly like every time something little happens, they would be like, oh, my God, you know, the vase broke. Uh, what, do, what do we do? Um, you might sort of model yourself on that. Um, I mean, there's there's lots of there's cultural reasons, you know, like women are much more likely to ruminate. And there's some maybe you could argue there's sort of some cultural push or prescriptions for women to kind of analyze their feelings more, you know. Mm. Um, we also know that, for example, when people ruminate, you know, what really works is to distract yourself and to absorb yourself in activity. Say, go out and play some pickup basketball with friends or do something really distracting. Not just like read a book because then you just will ruminate while you're reading. Right. Um, and even talking to friends, uh, a lot of women tend to ruminate with each other. And by the way, it's not only for women, it's just that it's more common in women. Mm-hmm. Um so we kind of, and so men are more likely to do those things. Or some people are more likely to kind of like, they're better at distracting themselves and absorbing themselves in other activities. So they don't just sit around like for hours and ruminate about whatever is happening in their life. I mean, I think we all do this to some extent. Mm-hmm. It's again, there are individual differences. Some people do it more than others. And not all rumination is necessarily bad too. A lot of times this is, this is a, a lot of critical thinking is, is kind of ruminative and, well, and and it, and also it seems like sometimes people that are at least externally like very very happy or s- seem like they're maybe a little bit oblivious or or almost have too much confidence or unwarranted um, confidence. Where, where I mean, how how do you kind of tease apart when uh, when it's unhealthy and and maybe when people need to be a little more self-reflective and when people should get out of their heads. Um, how how do you tell that in an individual? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. It's a very hard to do. So so for one thing, you know, um, I define rumination as, as that kind of like toxic, passive circular thinking. So kind of by definition, it's bad. Um, what you're talking about, the good kind of rumination, I would call something else like, 
self-reflection, self-analysis, introspection, mm-hmm. almost like philosophical introspection sometimes, you know, looking at the big picture of life and the world and humanity. Um, and so I totally agree that that is useful and functional, at least at times, not all the time, but at least at times. Um, and so, um, you know, the way I like to think about it, sort of rumination is circular. You're kind of like, you're, you're, you're thinking about A, and that leads you to think about B, and then you go back to A, and you go back to B, and you're just, you're not making any progress. You're not problem solving. You're not gaining any insight. Mm. And so that's kind of when you can tell that the rumination is toxic. Um, you think you're getting insight. You, it's sort of compelling because you feel like, oh, I just have to keep thinking about this. And the more I think about it, the more I'll like, come up with some kind of solution. But we actually have done studies that show that people who ruminate or induced ruminate, they actually don't come up with better solutions to life's problems. Really? Their solutions are worse. And again, because they're so pessimistic and negative, and it kind of makes them even feel worse and more depressed the more they ruminate. So hopeless. Feel, and Hopeless, exactly. Feeling like you have no control. And so what we advise is if you have a real problem and you're ruminating about it in this really dysfunctional, circular way, you want to like take a break. And try to do something, move to higher ground in a sense, and like try to get into a more neutral state, or maybe better yet, like a more positive mood, maybe do something that's rewarding, and then get back to try to solve that problem. You don't want to solve your problems. And we all know this, like if you're married, you don't want to have a really important conversation with your partner when you're in a really bad mood, you know, because you're just going to think of everything in a negative way. You want to be at least neutral or positive. Hmm. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, um, we we had the uh, author of what's his name J- James Pennebaker. Yeah, I know him, Jamie. Yeah, um, and he, uh, he talks a lot about um, how people use pronouns, and, and mentioned how in a therapist's office, if if someone is saying I a lot um, and talking about themselves a lot, the therapist might prime them to start talking about others. Well, how do you think others feel about that? Or if people are talking about others a lot, they might, they might prime them to talk about themselves a little bit. So it, it kind of reminded me of that, like the, maybe the positive effect of oscillating between those two rather than getting stuck in one position. Right, right. To kind of like put and, 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 and turning the focus off of you is almost always a good thing. Um, like another line of research we, we have in my lab is um, looking at people, uh, trying to get people to do more acts of kindness for others. Um, and it's very simple, like, you know, next week do, you know, three acts of kindness that you don't usually do, you know, say on Monday. Um, a week after that, do three more or five more. Um, and one of the reasons that kind of being generous or thoughtful to others makes people happier is because it takes the focus off of themselves mm. and onto others, you know, right? So you're you're not dwelling on yourself and your problems. You're sort of you're thinking about someone else and their problems. Um, so even when it's all like a minor, you know, little small act of help. I found that in my own life, it's, it's helped to sometimes just a little bit of mindfulness really helps with mm-hmm. any kind of rumination that I might. So I, I just started rock climbing again. And, and it reminded me of this, this common thing that happens where I'll go to the gym and, um, and, and some days I, I get like some some new route that I've been working on and I'm like, yes, great. And then other days, like toward the end, I'm just burnt out. I'm worn out and I can't do what I would normally be able to do. And I'll just start feeling depressed. I'm not like I'm not consciously depressed. I'm not upset about this. It's not it's perfectly normal. But there's just something in my non-conscious that's like you try and try. And it's like you're failing, you're failing or something like that. That that is a like 
that I'm certainly not consciously telling myself, but then I'll notice that I'm in a bad mood. But now that I'm like, oh, that's just because you missed a couple of routes or whatever. Now I'm like, oh, that's interesting that I feel that way right now rather than kind of dwelling on it. I think that self-awareness is really important and really useful, right? Because then, because otherwise you might like, it might, you might like spiral into sort of a vicious downward spiral, right? Like you're like, oh yeah, and my relationship isn't so good either. My work isn't going so well either. Mm. Uh, but if you're aware that your bad mood is just caused by something transient and not really, and pretty trivial, Right. Um, and so actually one thing that I do, an exercise that I do with my students in one of the classes I teach is I have them, I think for, let's see, for three days, uh, four times a day, I have them track like some fairly random times, let's say at 10 a.m., like 2.30 p.m., you know, 7 p.m., whatever, 10 p.m. I sort of track, they write down what are they doing at that moment um, and what are they feeling basically and what are they doing, who are they talking to, what are they feeling um, and down like from sad, happy to uh, I'm really absorbed. Uh, I feel proud of myself. You know, I feel competent. I feel connected to others. Um, and it's really amazing. The students tell me that they learn so much about themselves. So like they learn like, gee, you know, I thought that I'm not a morning person, but it looks like in the mornings is when actually I'm feeling my best. Uh, or whenever I'm with that friend, like I'm feeling not so good. You know, um, they, they see these patterns um, uh, and there's been other studies like this, like one study showed that, for example, people thought that they were most happy at leisure than at work, and it turned, it turned out that on average in the study, it was the opposite. People actually were more engaged and somewhat more positive at work because they were sort of engaged in like important tasks and more structured and social activities than when they're just sitting there like watching TV. Um, and so it's good to kind of challenge those assumptions about ourselves. Yeah, that's a that's very that's a terrific idea. The idea of kind of journaling. I mean, you know, they say that you should keep track of your, um, you know, financial budget, or mm-hmm. or sometimes keeping track of your your time, how you're using right. your time. But um, I I guess I never thought of the idea of of keeping track of of um of your kind of feelings and emotional states. Exactly. Feelings and thoughts. Like those, like you were talking about having thoughts like, Oh, I'm not so good at this or whatever. Like when do those thoughts occur? Do they always occur on Sunday night? Do they always occur when you're with a particular person in your life, you know, or when you're, when you've just finished some kind of task. So it's good to know that. So what, what, um, what are you referring to when you, um, talk about, uh, dissonance reduction? Oh, um, well, dissonance reduction, well, well, cognitive dissonance is sort of a state when you have kind of two uncomfortable thoughts or or thought or behavior that kind of make you uncomfortable. They don't go together. So, for example, if you believe that smoking is bad for your health and you're a smoker, those are like two thoughts that uh, don't go together. They're dissonant, you know, and so you feel that you need to reduce that dissonance either by quitting smoking or changing your, you know, your perspective. Like, oh, well, I know lots of people who live until 80 and when they're smokers, um, and so, distance, so, so we did a study where we looked at dissonance reduction after choice. So whenever you make a choice, in a sense, there's dissonance that's created between kind of what you chose and what you didn't choose. So, for example, you buy a new TV set, you know, you, you were choosing between, say, a few options, you, you finally took one home, and you might feel like, oh, I could have, maybe I should have gotten the other one, you know, because it had better audio, whatever, it was less expensive. And so we did a study, for example, um, with uh, high school students choosing colleges um, and looking at like, do people feel dissonance when they are rejected from a college or when they choose one college over another? Cause it's a big life choice for a lot of you know, young people. Um, and so we found this difference in happiness. So we found that happier kids or high school students um, 
when they chose a college to go to afterwards, they like even more, even more. They, it's kind of like, oh, I decided to go to UCLA. And the more they think about it, like the more attractive it seems to them, you know, which makes sense, right? That's very functional. Um, so we're talking about happy students, mm-hmm. relatively happy people. Um, the college they chose not to go to, they're like, ah, I didn't, you know, I, I turned on this other school, but it's fine. It's, it's a perfectly good school. It's not for me, you know. Um, and the colleges that rejected them, they did kind of feel like, oh, well, they're not, they weren't so great after all. Like they kind of tried to convince themselves. That's the dissonance reduction. You want to convince yourself, I didn't really want to go there anyway. And they tend to derogate the social life of those schools. Like, oh, I would have not had fun at those schools. But the unhappy kids, they did what we think is really not very productive or functional. So unhappy students, when they chose to go to a particular college, they didn't actually like it more afterwards. Um, it doesn't seem to be very, very useful. Um, and then they kind of really tried to derogate the colleges that they chose not to go to. So kind of like trying to convince themselves, I really didn't want to go there. Um, but they didn't derogate so much the colleges that rejected them. So essentially the theme here is that we find that people who are happier overall are just not as, um, I don't know, they're, they're sort of not thinking in a way that is sustaining and increasing their happiness. They're sort of trying, they're, they're thinking and feeling in a way that's uh, maintaining their unhappiness. So the jerk at the bar that gets rejected and then, then is like, well, I didn't want you anyway. He's actually happier and, <laughs> and better off. Oh, well, that's a good question. That's funny. We didn't apply it to relationships. Probably not because with relationships, it's, it's, you know, it's use, it's valuable to, to maintain relationships. Um, that's a really good question. So I don't know. No one's harassed me that before. <laughs> um, yeah. Did you yeah. uh, did you notice when you're looking at individual differences? Did you notice differences in? Um, in well, you you mentioned females tend to ruminate more. Did you mention any differences in um, in different cultures or age groups? Mm-hmm. So we've done, uh, actually, you're asking me mostly about work I've done like 20 years ago, but kind of oh, I'm sorry. We'll, getting, we'll, we'll getting get, back, we'll get getting back into the present. Um, we actually currently, we're, we're, we've done quite a few studies looking at different age groups, looking at different cultures. Um, in terms of age, we have never really found many differences in sort of what makes people happy at different ages. Um, it is the case that older people are happier. You know, what, who, who do you think are the young, who, are, who do you think are the unhappiest age group? I would say that um, teenagers. Yeah, teenagers, twenties. You know, young. You think like, oh, I wish I were in my twenties, but no, that's like the worst time in life when people are unhappy. Um, uh, you know, they're they're not certain what you know where they're going, um, and so kind of like young twenties, teenagers are the least happy. So people are getting happier as they age. The peak is generally around, depending on the study, around sixty, sixty-five, sixty-seven, seventy. You know, and then for various reasons, you know, happiness goes down after that. Um, so there are age differences in happiness, but not necessarily in sort of what makes people happy. So we study, say, what kind of strategies make people happier, like gratitude or savoring or working on relationships, um, uh, doing acts of kindness. And those seem to work kind of the same in different age groups, including kids. And teenage, we've done studies with uh, middle school students and with high school students. Um, they all, I mean, we actually were kind of concerned about doing like uh, gratitude experiments with high school students because they seem to be like, you know, teenagers are, are so ungrateful, right? They like don't, you know, they don't seem to be appreciative of things. Uh, they seem to lack a bit of empathy as well. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, but they, what we found is that they recognized that they weren't grateful enough and that they were really, they were really, they happy seemed to, to, to write gratitude letters. Um, 
In terms of, um, so we, oh, culture, um, really interesting. We did a study comparing um, college students in the U.S. and South Korea, and we had them do acts of kindness, and we had them write gratitude letters. So these are, by the way, all experiments that I'm talking about. They're like clinical trials where we have, you know, randomized controlled experiments. Some people do one thing. Other people do a control condition, sort of neutral. Um, and so we found that in the U.S., you know, students who did acts of kindness and wrote gratitude letters, they got happier over time. Um, but in Korea, the students who did acts of kindness got happier, but the students who did who wrote gratitude letters did not get happier. They actually got the students who what who wrote gratitude letters oh, okay. actually almost got like a little less happy. Um, we were really interested in that finding, and so I actually right after I got that result, I was giving a talk in South Korea to the Ministry of Education there, and and so people gave me all kinds of thoughts how how to interpret that, and they said, well. In South Korea, there's some, some cultural differences in how gratitude is, un, is sort of understood. You're sort of expected to reciprocate when you're, it could be kind of an awkward you know, thing to express gratitude. It, sometimes it's even insulting to thank someone. For example, it's considered insulting to thank your parents, which I thought was interesting. It's like, um, it's kind of like when you're expressing gratitude to someone, it's as though you're, there's an implicit acknowledgement that the person had a choice sort of not to do what they did. So when you're thanking your parents, it's like you're acknowledging that they had a choice not to be your parent, or not to be supportive, like not to be good parents. And so that could be kind of insulting. Like, of course I did this. You know, I'm your parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just recently, I was in Korea again, uh, just last month, uh, and or this month, and... <laughs> uh, and people there told me that this, they have this really stressful education system, really crazy. And they said the, the students there, just are, they're just so stressed out. They're like, I have nothing to be grateful for, you know. Um, and so they just have a hard time uh, thinking of things to be grateful for. So that backfires. And so anyway, there's some very interesting cultural differences like that. Um, clearly, there, there are cultural differences in how people, in the actual activities people do to pursue happiness, so some cultures are more collectivist. They're more there's more interdependence. Some are more individualist. Where like in the U.S. and Europe, Western Europe, we're more. It's more about like your own personal choice and agency, and sort of more about me, right? Um, and other cultures, it's more about like the group or the family. And so we actually are doing some studies trying to show that like in Asian cultures, uh, what really works to increase happiness is kind of being supportive of each other and like uh, really increasing that kind of like interpersonal harmony. I mean, that's going to be true for the U S too, but just not as much because mm. we're, we're more individualists. We're more, we care more about our personal happiness um, relative to other cultures. Um, all right. So, so don't, uh, and don't expect thank you letters from <laughs> Korea is, is basically. Actually, I, I got one recently, so I guess <laughs> oh, I was there, wrong. There yeah. you go. So yeah. I, I believe you've done some more recent work with, uh, humility. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Sure. So it's a little, so it's a little bit different from the happiness work. So, uh, we got interested in sort of humility as a state, like humble feelings. You know, sometimes you feel kind of humble and it could be, when something happens, like sometimes people, when they win awards, actually, they'll say, I'm humbled by this award. What does that mean? Like they feel like, why? and often it's a sense of gratitude. In fact, we've done studies showing that gratitude makes people feel humble. The idea is that you, you, you understand that you're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like this award or this success or your happiness is not just about you. It's about all these people in, their, in, their, in, in your life that sort of help to make it happen. And so we're interested in kind of like what leads to humble feelings. So gratitude is one thing. 
Another thing we found, we did a cool study using virtual reality technology trying to induce awe. Uh, because what we, what we found was that uh, kind of an awe-inspiring experience also makes you feel humble. And think about it in terms of like, you're standing looking at the Grand Canyon or you're looking at the universe and you, you see how you're just a small dot in the universe. And that feeling of smallness also is, is a, it's a humble feeling. You're feeling like you're, you know, you're just, you're not, a, you're not big, you're actually small, you know, and you have both strengths and weaknesses. Um, and so we're right now doing some interventions to try to um, increase kind of the frequency of these humble feelings in people because humility has a lot of benefits. Um, what about the humbleness I feel when I bomb on stage? <laughs> that's a, that, that's not necessarily right, I, a positive. I think that's not humbleness, but maybe humility. Well, actually, humiliation is kind of a uh, extreme word, but a lot of people confuse humility with humiliation, right? So humility right. is a sense that, you know, you have both strengths and weaknesses. It's not just all about you. Um, you feel like a sort of, you know, uh, there's a great quote that it's not about it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Um, it's not just, it's not a focus all about you. It's more focus on others. Um, I think when you bomb at something, it's more of like a low self-esteem feeling. Right. Like maybe humiliation is the extreme, but I, I don't think that's humility. Humility is really more of a sense. Like when we, when we think about people in our lives, like there's someone, I have a colleague who's kind of a paragon of humility and he's super brilliant and successful, but He's not, I mean, it's not that he doesn't know it. I'm sure he knows it, but he doesn't, you know, parade it around. He's super helpful to others. He wants to contribute to the world. You know, he's just not so focused on himself. So it's really, again, it's about thinking of yourself less, not thinking less of yourself. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about your book, your most recent book, The, the Myths of Happiness. Mm -hmm. what, um, what are the myths <laughs> of <laughs> happiness? Well, that book was kind of inspired by um, observations that a lot of people think that, like they have, a lot of people have sort of the wrong idea of what they think will make them happy. So, so they think like, oh, I'll be happy when you know, I get married, then I'll be happy. Like I'm not happy now, but I'll be happy when... I get that job I always wanted to have, or I move to that city where I've always wanted to live, or I have a baby, or whatever it is, or I'll, I'll strike it rich. Um, and what research shows is that none of those things will make you happy sort of forever. I mean, they might make you happy temporarily, but then you're going to go back to being just your same person that you were before. Um, same thing with unhappiness. People think like, oh, I would be just terribly unhappy if I ever, like, let's say I didn't find a partner and I was single all my life. Turns out single people are just as happy as married people. Um, really? Yes. Uh, oh. um, there's a big confound, which is that married people are, by definition, people who've stayed together, right? So, um, so, but you have to look at like sort of everyone who's ever been married versus everyone who's been single consist consistently. Um, so, or people think like if I ever got sick or I didn't have as much money as I thought I needed, you know, I'll be terribly unhappy. When I get old, I'll be unhappy. You know, there's all these myths about unhappiness as well. And so I kind of set out to sort of, you know, I have chapters about these different myths. So like I have a chapter about aging. You know, we already talked about that a little bit about how people think like, oh, you know, it'd be so awful to be old. And yeah. we all, and I, 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 I hate think getting old. Is, yeah, we all well. dread getting older. Um, and, and, but it turns out older people are, are genuinely happier. They're more appreciative. You know, they're, they live, they enjoy the moment more. You know, they're not as stressed out. They don't have as many negative emotions. They're, they're not like, oh my God, you know. How am I going to get through this day? They know they'll get through the day. They've done it before on many days. Um, uh, marriage, right? So people think like, oh, I have to have like, if my, you know, my marriage has to be a certain way. It turns out that there's something called hedonic adaptation, which is 
this phenomena that people are very good at getting used to changes in their lives, so hedonic adaptation. Um, so basically what it means is that um, we adapt to almost any positive thing in our lives, including marriage, including a new job or getting a new car. And so we think that, uh, uh, and so, so we're naturally going to be, become a little bit less happy with that new car or with the marriage or with the job over time. And that is normal. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us. It's just a normal part of sort of human nature. Yeah, we've just evolved to be bottomless pits of want. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, there's an evolutionary reason for it is that we're sort of attuned to change. And once things are the same, they're not a threat or a reward anymore. We're sort of attuned to either threats in the environment, which is like that tiger coming up on the mountain or, or reward, maybe that food source that we see or the water source that we see. So, uh, or the mate, <laughs> potential mate. It's not that we're hard to please. It's that we're highly adaptable. We're very highly adaptable, which is, and it's good in the negative domain, right? Because we, it's good that we get over, you know, divorce or like some loss of income, but it has a dark side, which is that we we also get over very quickly positive things as well. But we need to understand that, and so we all know people, for example, who are constantly changing jobs or constantly changing partners, right? Because once those things, once your original job or partner isn't as exciting as they were before, you think, oh, well, there must be something wrong with that relationship or that that work environment so i'm going to look for a new one and but it's going to happen repeatedly again and again what if you're mindful of it and you can be like look at all this stuff i'm taking for granted this is amazing (laughs) i I have so much stuff i take for granted right right that's funny it's funny um yeah i guess that's kind of a funny way to express gratitude right this is the stuff that i'm i should be more grateful for i'm taking for granted but i really shouldn't take it for granted but anyway that it'll make you realize that there's all this stuff in your life Mm -hmm. um so I've, I've thought of this a couple times, mm-hmm. once when you're talking about teenagers and, and then kind of when you're talking about older people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about the role of, of uncertainty. It seems like uncertainty is, is a big stressor for people and um, it probably leads to a fair amount of ruminating for a lot of people, whereas, whereas certainty kind of seems to lead to a lot more... I guess, uh, do, do you call them flow states? Do, do people normally say flow states? Or, or you know, what, what people would think of is just kind of, um, I, I've talked about this before, usually when I, after I've recorded mm-hmm. um, some album or something like that, I've finished a show and then I have a new show that I need to create mm-hmm. and work on and I'm not quite sure the direction that I want to go with it and I don't have it figured out, that's, that's when um, that kind of uncertainty um, has a fairly negative effect on me. Whereas when I have, mm-hmm. like right now, I'm, I'm kind of ready to record a, another special. I'll be doing this show that I, mm-hmm. that I know really well, I'm very confident in. And I feel like I have this clear path mm-hmm. with my career. And mm-hmm. it's very certain for the next six months mm-hmm. to a year or whatever. And just that alone makes an incredible difference in in mm-hmm. my overall well-being i would say mm-hmm. well um there's a couple things i can i could add to that which is that um well there's certainty in the domain in the positive domain and the negative domain so um you you don't want uncertainty in the negative domain right so imagine like you're ill and you're not sure what's going to happen what your prognosis is and is are you getting worse and what 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 kind of treatment do you need so you do not want uncertainty or like you're you're married, but things aren't going well, and there's all this uncertainty over your job. Maybe you'll be laid off, or your boss is horrible, 
And so uncertainty is bad with the negative domain. In the positive domain, I think a little uncertainty can be a good thing, um, but not too much, right? So you want to have stability. So human beings kind of, they want stability and familiarity, and that's good. It makes us feel secure and comfortable. Um, but a little bit uncertainty is also good because otherwise we adapt and we get bored, right? Mm-hmm. So like if your job, like a job like yours is already very dynamic and challenging and things are, and things are always changing, then, um, uh, you already have like that built-in uncertainty. Like you're not sure exactly what's going to happen day to day. Like some people's jobs are very like the same every day. Um, and so you don't really need much uncertainty in your job, but in some, some people are going to want that. Like, and so by uncertainty, I kind of mean, you know, some element of a positive kind of surprise, like maybe new opportunities might arise, maybe the potential to meet new people, you know, grow as a person, uh, learn new things, you know, gain new skills. Like those are all like really good positive sources of uncertainty. So that's where uncertainty is a good thing. But again, kind of against a background of stability. Right. Like a vacation or an adventure is very sure. uncertain. Sure. But people look In a very good way. much forward yeah. to these. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sony, for joining me on the show. I think uh, I think people are, are going to be very interested in your books, which, again, are The How of Happiness and the most recent The Myths of Happiness. Um, and there will be links, of course, on the herewearepodcast.com website. And thank you all for listening and being curious, wonderful, inquisitive people. I will talk with you next week. Next week on the program, uh, I had a real fun time doing this one. This is at uh, the Chimp Haven, which takes in um, research retired research chimps and cares for them, and they get to live out a uh, long, um, happy life, much much longer lives than what they'd get in the wild, and they're exceptionally well cared for and um, and happy chimps and um so we talked to them about everything that they do uh it was really cool i got a whole tour of the facility um but just to let you guys know the the kind of work that some sometimes goes into this podcast my once in a while i need a week off um one i spend hours sometimes just trying to get a guest um sometimes i don't hear back from people sometimes people need a little more convincing. They just have some comic who they don't know reaching out to them. Um, some some of these people are exceptionally busy. It's hard to coordinate schedules. Some people are interested, are gone at the time that I'm going to be there, or, or what have you. Um, that That's quite an undertaking, um, and that's kind of the pain in the butt part of this podcast. And then for something like the Chimp Haven, I had to rent a car. I had to drive... Uh, several hours to uh, to um, Keithville, Louisiana. Um, I had to get a hotel um, and uh, all sorts of stuff. And not not to mention that I have I pay to have this edited. And, uh, and Ramin Nazer, who I give a shoestring budget, does an amazing job. So um, if you guys appreciate all of the work that I put into this. You can um, always, I encourage everyone to pay it forward by donating to um, one of the many charities that are mentioned on the show. Um, and you can also uh, you can also give it back to me by 
taking a few minutes to write a review on iTunes, which helps out tremendously and makes me very happy. And you can follow me on, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at, uh, at here we pod or me at Shane comedy. And, um, also, uh, please check out a live show sometime. I'll, uh, coming up, I'll be in Austin, Texas, then Indianapolis. I have, um, San Francisco coming up, um, Myrtle beach, Wilmington, North Carolina, and uh, finalizing a whole bunch of dates for the fall, which I'll be announcing soon. So, um, you know, uh, as I've said before, I spend my own money um, putting together this podcast. Um, I don't, I don't, it's a free podcast. No one has to pay for it. I don't ask for donations. Um, so if you do get a chance to see me live or if you can, see that I'm in some area where maybe you know some people, uh, spread the word for me. That helps me out tremendously. Um, you guys are wonderful, especially the ones that listen all the way to the end. You know, you're my favorite. <laughs> I like when people write me sometimes now and they're like, I'm one of your favorites because I listen to the end and you are. Um, so, and people have been coming out to shows a lot more lately. So it is starting to pay off, uh, for me in that sense a bit more and i i this isn't i'm not this isn't like a sob story about how hard i work i really love making this podcast but it is an undertaking so um yeah that's all uh looking forward to next week really fun episode so i'll talk with you then I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Yin Yang Twins. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine. 
as he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish. Oh my God. <laughs> he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh, my 